0: Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, landmark compensation approved.
1: It's a historic compensation agreement, the largest in the history of Canada, and I think it will... um, in no way erase the harms but it will acknowledge the uh, the pain
0: the federal court gives the go-ahead for a 23 billion dollar settlement compensation for hundreds of thousands of First Nations children and their families affected by the on-reserve child welfare system coming up we will speak with the Minister for Indigenous Services and a lawyer representing one of the co complainants in the case also Incidents of anti-Semitic hate in the wake of the conflict between Israel and Hamas. We will speak with the head of B'nai B'rith Canada. And with polling numbers in a free fall, is there still a path forward for Justin Trudeau and his leadership? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Sorapio. The federal court has given its go-ahead for a historic and massive settlement, $23 billion to be paid by the federal government to hundreds of thousands of First Nations children and their families. It is compensation for the harm caused by Ottawa's chronically underfunding on-reserve child welfare services for years.
1: We often look to the federal government as the controlling partner in these um, types of arrangements, but actually the compensation is designed to be controlled and delivered by indigenous people. Our job is to make sure the money is there, which it is, and to work with the uh, parties to ensure that they have the tools they need uh, in the delivery of the compensation. But I think the time has come for all of us to question um, how we conceptualize the federal government as having control over indigenous peoples and really turn that on its head. This is about indigenous people having control over a process that's long overdue.
0: Now this is the largest settlement agreement in Canadian history and you just heard a bit of the Indigenous Services Minister in that clip and for more we're now joined by Patty Haidu from the foyer of the House of Commons. Minister, thank you for being with us.
1: Great to be here.
0: Now the courts uh, obviously have approved this compensation deal. I'm wondering what you hope it can do now for Indigenous people uh, who came into contact with child welfare services in the past and who are covered by this deal.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, listen, like any compensation package, uh, this is an acknowledgement of the harm that was caused. And certainly survivors of that system have talked for a very long time of the kinds of things they've experienced as a result of the discrimination in the system. But I think for, uh, to be clear, I mean, compensation can't, uh, you know, it can't restore uh, many of those harms. It's an acknowledgement, though, that I think survivors have been calling for for a very long time.
0: Okay. But you know, to that, I'm wondering what your, your reaction is to Cindy Blackstock, of course, uh, a well-known advocate for First Nations children. And she says, uh, with this compensation coming out, even before it came out, that there's still work to be done, that First Nations children are still, uh, as she says, being discriminated against and being poorly served by the system. What do you say to that?
1: well I, I would first of all thank Dr. Blackstock and uh, the litigants Mishum and Trout, uh, um, who I had a chance to meet by the way at the at a ceremony just yesterday here in Ottawa, and of course the AFN and the many litigants they represented for their ongoing commitment and advocacy. This isn't easy to advocate when, in fact, you're representing a class of people uh, that have experienced similar discrimination as, as you have, um, but what I would say to To Dr. Blackstock and to others is that the commitment of Canada is strong. The agreement in principle actually committed Canada not just to compensate individuals harmed but to work on uh, reforming the system so that the child welfare system would end that discrimination, would be better suited to support families and children, and would ultimately result in uh, people reaching their full potential.
0: Okay and and when you talk about reforming there there is that additional twenty billion dollars beyond the compensation that is meant for reform. How do you see that money being used and how quickly?
1: Well, that uh, additional $20 billion, as you rightly point out, is part of the agreement in principle that was struck almost two years ago. And that, that $20 billion, that additional $20 billion, it is the foundation of the work that we're doing with the parties to transform a system that has long been rooted in systemic discrimination so it's looking at everything from how uh, money is apportioned to how we can increase self-determination and in, uh, for indigenous peoples to uh, really manage their own affairs in terms of child uh, and uh, family and children's services that work by the way we didn't wait for this uh, this this uh, reform to happen uh, the government of Canada as you know uh, a number of years ago passed c92 which is about reforming child and Family Services and restoring control to First Nations. There's about 10 of these coordination agreements across the country now with long-term funding, but this is really a reflection of how all of the department's work needs to be adjusted and transformed so it's more uh, it's more rapid, it's more equitable, and it certainly has a better lens of, ec- of, of uh, self-determination.
0: Will any of that go towards the, the Jordan principles cases? Because you know now that this settlement has approved, there, there will in all likelihood uh, be greater attention paid to those cases that are taking longer to settle than the what 12 to 48 hours that the government is meant to have to process the claims
1: certainly look the majority of Jordan's principal settlements are being processed very quickly but you're right there's still a backlog and I hear about that from families in my own riding in Thunder Bay Superior North and from practitioners who are trying to access services Uh, that is part of reforming the system to make sure that the system is working in all of the aspects that it is expected to provide care for children and families in a way that's rapid, in a way that's uh, trauma-informed, in a way that's indigenous-led. And that's that hard work ahead of us. Dr. Blackstock is right to continue to press as are uh, the other indigenous leaders in this space.
0: Now, uh, part of the settlement uh, is also calling on the the prime minister to to apologize publicly for the underfunding of the child welfare system. Uh, Do you think that will happen anytime soon?
1: Well, certainly I've uh, spoken, as I mentioned yesterday, with um, many of the individual litigants uh, that that really began this hard work of uh, of seeking justice for uh, themselves and for the people that uh, like them that have been so harmed. And I understand that call for an apology. I think the $23 billion settlement is uh, implicitly acknowledging the role that Canada had in the systemic discrimination against Indigenous children. And I certainly have forwarded that request to the Prime Minister's office. And I know they'll, that he and his team will be uh, looking at that request very closely.
0: Okay. Uh, Minister how do I know uh, no one expected the, the ruling to come out today, so really appreciate you making time for us this evening. Appreciate it.
1: Thank it's, you. It's good news today for Indigenous children and families.
0: Well, let's continue the conversation and bring into it right now Sarah Clark. She is a lawyer representing the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society, a co-complainant in this case. Sarah, good to see you again.
2: Good to see you, Michael.
0: Listen, I want to begin with your reaction to this go-ahead issued by the courts today. How important is this step for the people who will be compensated?
2: Well, this is huge, Michael. As uh, you've probably reported on already, this is going to be the biggest settlement in Canadian history. Um, And, of course, it all stems with the violation of the human rights of First Nations children and their families. So to have that discrimination and that racism recognized in the context of a class action, I think, is really important.
0: Well, you know, you you raise a human rights issue, and of course it was the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, uh, the first federal body that said Canada needs to compensate First Nations children who were put into care. Uh, The government fought that order, eventually lost, obviously, as uh, we are here today. But what lessons do you hope Ottawa will take from this case?
2: Well, I think that... The number one lesson is, why is this number so big? The number is so big because the discrimination went on and on for years and decades. When there were advocates across the country calling for the government to stop discriminating against children and their families. So hopefully the lesson learned here is that when people are calling out with evidence and with reason and with common sense, asking for dignity and respect, that the government will listen and that we don't repeat this type of behavior again.
0: So that is what you hope comes out today. But of course, this has been ongoing for years. There have been discussions, negotiations behind closed doors. Do you think that there, that at this point, there are people in the federal government that do know that lesson and are hoping to run with that lesson?
2: I think that's possible. Um, but it doesn't really matter what people's intentions are inside the government. What we need to see is action. Uh, as you likely know, the human rights complaint remains ongoing. We don't yet have a long-term reform uh, package to actually undo the discrimination and prevent it from recurring. So there's still a lot of work to do in the future. Uh, that shouldn't take away from today's big win for all of the victims in this case. This is monumental for them. I think it's a recognition of the harm that they've endured. But we have to keep moving forward and we have to make sure that the discrimination ends.
0: Now, the settlement uh, also calls on the Prime Minister to apologize on behalf of Canada for the underfunding, the subsequent impacts that the underfunding created. Uh, There seems to be a debate on whether or not that apology should proceed right now. What's your thought on it?
2: So from the Caring Society's perspective, I think the concern is that a public apology uh, is not really the time now. The time now is not for a public apology. When someone apologizes, it's normally because they've done something Uh, that was wrong and they're not going to do it again. We're not at a place yet, Michael, where the discrimination against First Nations children and their family has come to an end. I don't think that that should take away, though, from the invitation for the Prime Minister to personally apologize to every single representative plaintiff in this action. I think those folks are likely entitled to his time uh, and his attention. But to publicly apologize for the discrimination in this case, is tricky to do right now when there are children today who are still experiencing that very same discrimination.
0: So $23 billion set aside for the compensation, an additional $20 billion uh, earmarked to to address ongoing issues within uh, child family uh, welfare uh, services. Uh, What do you hope happens with that money? Where would you like this to go?
2: I think from the Caring Society's perspective, that money has to be directed at evidence-informed solutions to the continued overrepresentation of First Nations child, uh, children in the child welfare system, as well as ensuring that children's under Jordan's principle receive the services, products, and supports that they deserve, that they're entitled to, and that they need. And we know that those problems are not yet fixed, and they can't just be fixed with money. The government has to make a real commitment to restructuring uh, the Child Welfare Services Program as well as ensuring that Jordan's principle as a legal principle is implemented in a way that respects the rights of children. So money is important, but actually the structure is very important, and that's really where the parties have to continue their ongoing discussions and their ongoing work.
0: Sarah Clark, always appreciate the time and the insight. Thank you for tonight. Thanks, Michael. to the war between Israel and Hamas now, as that conflict is having an impact here at home, not only on the streets with marches for either side, but also a rise in hate attacks and incidents that have made Canadian Jews, Muslims, and Palestinians feel less safe in Canada. It's led Toronto's mayor to make this statement on social media this week. Olivia Chow saying, quote, Last weekend, protests targeted a Jewish business in Toronto. Targeting a business in this way is wrong. There is no place in our city for anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, hate, intimidation, and harassment of any kind. With more on this, we're now joined by Michael Mostyn, the CEO for B'nai B'rith Canada. Michael, thank you for joining us. Good to see you, Michael. Thank you. Listen, I want to begin uh, with your reaction to the demonstration that targeted a cafe in downtown Toronto over the weekend. Because from what has been posted in social media, it seems to have been very triggering for many people in the Jewish community.
3: Absolutely. Very troubling. Um, This is something that a lot of people are obviously talking about within the Jewish community. Um, Calls for the boycott of a Jewish business uh, inside the city of Toronto. We've seen that before. Uh, Very, very disturbing. Um, We're obviously seeing many, many demonstrations. Some of these demonstrations, actually all of the demonstrations, have elements of very disturbing um, paraphernalia, flags, that uh, have the emblems of terrorist organizations, chants, uh, what the Jewish community considers to be genocidal chants, uh, have been seen and witnessed. Uh, So all of that put together and then obviously just disturbing, harassing and inciting against just regular patrons that uh, want to go out for a meal. Um, That shouldn't happen Uh, and yet it is happening and we're seeing the ramping up of rhetoric and um, this does have the community on edge.
0: On edge, because in addition to what happened in Toronto over the weekend, your organization, uh, to my understanding, uh, has seen a rise in anti-Semitic incidents uh, since Hamas attacked Israel on October the 7th. What exactly have you seen? How widespread across the country? We've seen demonstrations uh, from coast to coast,
3: unfortunately. Um, uh, We've received reports to our anti-hate hotline, and we have apps as well from the community. talking about all manner of... Um, discriminatory and anti-Semitic acts, reports of um, mezuzahs on people's doorposts, which are religious articles, um, um, being um, taken down, um, certainly the genocidal chants at these rallies, but also uh, other disturbing reports on university campuses um, and uh, within Jewish areas. Um, It's just wrong for parents of any community to have to think in their head sometimes, is this a good day? Is this a safe day to send my children to school? We actually witnessed that when Hamas put out a day of rage just last week um, that many parents chose to keep their children home. So we greatly appreciate the physical presence of police all the way across this country. Uh, they're working very hard to make sure that all communities in Canada uh, feel safe. Um, but uh, this is very disturbing. Uh, and as I mentioned before, everyone is on edge because we just see the incitement growing, the anger and rage growing, and, um, and um, it, it's just very hard for everybody.
0: You know, going into this, we read a tweet from Olivia Chow, who, who basically reminds everyone in Toronto that they need to remember people's humanity. Jewish Muslim, Palestinian, Israeli, we need to be to think of people 's humanity. Do we need to hear more of that type of language from the federal government
3: well i, I don't I, I actually hope that the federal government doesn 't repeat that sort of language because whereas she 's absolutely right, um, we do have to remember our humanity. We do have to treat each other with civility and decency and understanding at the same time, if the Jewish community is being targeted uh, and a restaurant is being targeted because of um, Jewish ties and Jewish ownership, uh, that should be called out. And, um, uh, and there are many that we've heard from at B'nai B'rith that were upset that it wasn't specifically singled out and said, because this is an incident of anti-Semitism, and we should be saying that loud and clear. Um, so when it comes to issues of uh, terror incitement, which we are unfortunately seeing on city streets, we need to unequivocally condemn this. Canada is an amazing country. Canada is a country that treasures freedom of speech and differing opinions, but there are ways to engage in those conversations, and there are red lines. We cannot incite violence against each other, we cannot try and intimidate other communities because we do not share their perspectives, but we are seeing that taking place. And if that continues long enough, and the sort of anger that we're seeing in some of these mobs, and these are mobs, that we, we don't want to see that escalate uh, to something, to an event where individuals start getting hurt. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's all of our job to try and lower down the rhetoric. Um, if you have different political viewpoints, share them, express them, but do so in a way that's not inciting against your fellow neighbors here in Canada. We're seeing too much of that, and that's absolutely wrong.
0: And just to be clear, you want to see political leaders condemn incidents of anti-Semitism that arise like, for example, what happened in Toronto over the weekend, according to many of the witnesses. But you also believe that uh, that, that should extend to everybody, that everybody should, should be able to express their opinions peace, peacefully without inciting hate, Muslim, Jew, Palestinian, Israeli. 100 uh, percent. And not just. Any identifiable group. Um,
3: should be respected in this country. Nobody should be singled out simply or blamed because of uh, another country, things that are happening overseas uh, or in fact anything. Um, we, we need to keep it civil in this country but that's not what we see happening right now in this incitement uh, taking place against the Jewish community. Uh, it needs to stop and, um, and the rule of law has to be enforced. We're seeing Highway Traffic Act violations, for example. Um, we are seeing uh, any manner of anti-discrimination laws in various cities being violated that, you know, are lower threshold than the criminal code. But we need to enforce that rule of law, and we should see our leaders call out um, to the various authorities and say, we want to see this return to civility. Let's not let these things continue to escalate.
0: Michael Moss, I appreciate the time as always. Thank you for that. Thank you, Michael. Time now for the other stories making headlines today. I'm saying that I'll use every friggin' device in the Canada Labour Code that I can find to make sure that they do a deal at the table because that's the ones that are sustained. That was Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan calling on the St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation and Unifor to resume bargaining. Both sides in the St. Lawrence Seaway strike will sit down with a mediator on Friday. Approximately 360 Unifor members shut down locks along the St. Lawrence Seaway shipping route last weekend demanding better pay. The federal government pushed the union and management to get back to the table, as the strike is affecting many industries from grain farmers to steelmakers. the key trade corridor linking the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes. It serves over 100 ports and commercial docks that export goods like grain, iron ore, and petroleum products. To the latest in Gaza. Let me be clear, no party to an armed conflict is above international humanitarian law. That's United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres speaking of his concern about what he calls clear violations of international humanitarian law in Gaza. It was made during his address to the UN Security Council today. Protecting civilians can never mean using them as human shields. Protection civilians, protecting civilians does not mean ordering more than one million people to evacuate to the South, where there is no shelter, no food, no water, no medicine and no fuel, and then continuing to bomb the South itself. Israeli officials responded immediately to his remarks.
1: This will be the darkest hour, the darkest hour of the United Nations under you, Mr. Secretary.
0: Israel's UN Ambassador Gilad Erdan called on Guterres to resign immediately and Foreign Minister Eli Cohen said he will not meet with Guterres. Back here at home, we did hear from Christian Freeland, the finance minister today, and she says the government's fall economic statement will focus on housing and affordability.
1: We'll be narrowly focused on a few key challenges.
3: It will be focused on building more homes faster and making more homes available for Canadians to live in, on continuing our work to make life more affordable for Canadians,
0: Freeland's remarks came after the government's financial statements revealed a $35.3 billion deficit for 2022-23. That is $7.7 billion less than the spring budget predicted. We still have no date on the fall economic statement. Well, Justin Trudeau has made it clear he intends to lead his party in the next general election, whenever that may be. But according to the polls, bad approval numbers and a downward trajectory have even liberal voters thinking it would be better for the party to have a new leader. So is there still a path forward for the prime minister? Well, to talk about this, we're now joined by Dan Arnold, the chief strategy officer for Polara Strategic Insights. He was also the director of research during the Federal Liberals 2015, 2019, and 2021 election campaigns. Uh, Dan, thanks for coming to the studio today. Happy to be here. So obviously, you know, you've know, you looked at the polling numbers, and this has been going on since the start of the summer. has gotten really bad in the fall. And the more recent, one of the more recent polls came from Angus Reid. 57% of Canadians believe Trudeau should step down. You know, I, I appreciate that an election is still potentially two years away, but is this something that the Prime Minister can recover from or... Are people done with the Trudeau brand?
4: Yeah, and polling doesn't tell you that, right? It's telling you how people feel right now. And I think right now people are, you know, in a grumpy mood. That's my expert analysis after doing many focus groups over the past year. Uh, Things are not going great in the country right now. At we do a quarterly study on the rage index, we call it, how angry Canadians are about different things. And their level of anger is higher now than it was a year ago. They're more angry now about inflation than they were a year ago when inflation was twice the rate it was now. And that's because... You know, even though the rate of inflation's gone down, the price of gas hasn't gone down, the price of ground meat hasn't gone down, and heaven forbid you're trying to renew your mortgage right now, and then your fixed expenses are getting higher. So I think there's a foul mood across the land. Um, If the election were today, that's not great for an incoming government, especially one that's been around for a long time. I think the Conservatives probably would win if the election were today. But, you know, two years from now, we don't know what the economy's going to look like. We don't know how people are going to be feeling. And I think that would be the hope for the Liberals right now, is that it 's a different issue set in two years. People are feeling a bit better, maybe they 're worried about other issues where they trust the liberals a bit more than conservatives, and you know, that would be the path forward for them uh, if they 're looking ahead to the next election.
0: Okay, so a path forward perhaps hinging on the issues that people prioritize, but you know there, there's also is there not a, an element of trust here, and if a trust factor is gone, if they don 't believe that Justin Trudeau is the man with the ideas to get life better for individuals in this country. Is there really a path of a comeback for him? Yeah, I think it's up
4: to the government and Trudeau himself to show that he gets what people are going through, that he understands their challenges, that he's doing things to help. And that's, you know, what the government has to do right now. Um, And you you can argue how affected they've been over the last little bit on that. You know, in terms of his leadership, I think it really comes down to, you know, is the issue right now that people are just sick of his face and they want someone else? Or are they actually upset with the direction of the country, of their lives. And if they're upset with just how things are going and the government's overall direction, you know, just swapping him out for somebody else who's been in government the last couple of years probably isn't gonna change how people feel. Um, you know, I think if people were just upset with Trudeau, but they like the direction of the government, you know, the votes would be going to the NDP right now. They're the ones that are basically aligned with the Liberals when it comes to policy. Um, And that would be, you know, kind of a change in in leadership if that was how people were feeling. Um, The fact that votes are going to the Conservatives, I think, tells me that it is basically being driven by this kind of economic unease, this economic malaise that's out there. And, you know, a new leader is not going to solve that um, right away anyways.
0: Okay, new leader. And, you know, it had me wondering, because again, when you look at a lot of the polling numbers, they're saying that even liberal voters who voted for Trudeau the last few elections are, are, are softening right now. So if, if that's the case, is there anyone in the liberal ranks who, who might become a leader who might do better than Justin Trudeau leading the party?
4: Okay, and that's I mean that's the great unknown. Uh, you don't know because he's been tested in election campaigns and I think people have seen that he's a strong performer. He rises his his A game to the top level when it comes to an election campaign, when it comes to debates, firing up a crowd. Yeah, you know what you're getting there, and I think the hope for liberals would be that he, he brings that to the campaign when it happens. Somebody else would be would be untested, and I think you know the conservatives have been sitting on a lot of money in that war chest, and you can bet that if a new leader came in there would be wall to wall ads about how this person is a disaster and would be horrible for the country and i think that's you know a risk that you know someone else comes in and then you lose that kind of connection that's been made, and they get defined poorly, and you know things maybe even get even worse of that situation,
0: right? Which historically we saw with Michael Ignatieff and Stefan with The, the conservative Party.
4: Uh, attack ad bazooka uh, has certainly been effective in the past, and would be pointed at somebody else if they came
0: in for sure. Mm-hmm. So, what's the advice you would give right now to, to to the liberals, as someone who has done these focus groups, talked to people, looked at the numbers? What would the advice be? Because right now it seems to be the focus for the government is to keep making announcement after announcement after announcement about housing affordability and getting the ministers out there you know, every week, that's possible. Yeah,
4: I think for any government, you want to show voters that you understand what they're going through, that you're doing things to make their lives better, that you get it, that you're not out of touch. The kiss of death for any government that's been around for eight, nine, ten years is that people look at you and they say, they don't understand my problems. They're out of touch. So you need to do things to show that you get what they're going through. I think the housing announcements are good to that end. It shows that the government understands what young people are going through uh, with the challenges they're facing. They need to do more of that. They need to keep doing that. And then I think you know when you get into an election campaign, you know, if we're being honest, they've got to draw a contrast with Paul Yeab. And they're going to have to show that he's not somebody who uh, maybe you're upset with the current government. You've got to show that the alternative is worse, and they're going to have to draw that hard contrast uh, with him in an election campaign,
0: except right now, when you look at favorability numbers, uh, Pierre Polyev's numbers are going up, and of course the Conservatives are very much in the lead. How do you counter that?
4: Yeah, and I think, look, in the short term, you know, I think a lot of that is driven by just frustration with the with the government. I think voters know a lot about Pierre Polyev right now. We need a poll. Uh, Palera last month, where we asked people, "Can you name the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada?" And they had to give the answer in their own words. We didn't give them a we didn't give them the name and say, "How do you feel?" We said, "Can you name this guy?" And I was, you know, a pretty pretty generous grading on this curve here. If you said his name is uh, Peter Paulingnal or Pierre Paliver, we said, "Okay, that's close enough." We give them a full mark on that. Uh, but even with that that generous curve, it was 57% of people who could actually name him, and that's. You know, if you ask them, can you name three of his policies or something about him, I imagine the numbers would be even less than that. So I don't think people know a lot about him right now. And I think that, you know, when you get to an election campaign, that's an opportunity to to fill in the gaps. And look, if he fills in the gaps in a positive light, his numbers could get even higher. But if the Liberals are effective at filling in the gaps and giving people some doubt about the risk, about, you know, the alternative, then I think, you know, that's the opening for, for the Liberals to maybe not be beloved and get reelected, but at least be the best option on the table and get
0: reelected. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens. And, of course, we'll speak again. Dan Arnold, thank you for the time. Anytime. And that is our program for this Tuesday evening. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. I'm Michael Serapio. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow night. But up next, Esther Béjean avec L'Essentiel.